four o'clock. The afternoon was so balmy that I shoved up all the windows before the rest of the family arrived. A moist breeze carried the scent of apples being harvested in the valley below. As the breeze riffled music on the piano, I hoped North Georgia wouldn't get a storm until the judge returned safely home. My sisters were early, of course. One of King's maxims had been, Always arrive early to an important meeting. It gives you the edge over those who come later. Regan strolled in with Holcomb, talking to Susan over one shoulder. I want mother's china, crystal, and silver. You don't care about things like that, and Teensy won't need them. I want the rugs, said Susan, two paces behind with Albert. Not all the rugs. Regan objected. I want the Aubusson in the living room. All the rugs. You wouldn't believe the carpets in our house. I think the last president's dog squatted in every room. I want the piano, too. You don't play. Neither do you, but you already have a Steinway. I need this one for parties. If you get the piano, I want Mother's jewelry. As if Regan didn't have more jewelry than Tiffany's. I don't care about the jewelry. I want King's Mercedes. We need a third car now that Monique has come back home to stay. They bargained their way across the hall. My sisters had little in common, except both were tall, dark, and carried themselves like King's daughters. Susan, 48, was large and confident like her voice. She had inherited our father's brilliant mind, large bones, and strong jaw. Like him, she had a strong personality that dominated any gathering she attended. An English professor and poet of modest renown, she inhabited a plane above women's fashion. Her hair, raw umber with a touch of gray, was caught up at the back in a wooden clip. She wore what she had probably thrown on that morning to teach medieval literature— a beige linen tunic over a long brown skirt. Regan, two years younger, was the beauty of our family, with a southern drawl you could spread like honey. She had mother's delicate features, willowy figure, and hair as soft and dark as mink, which she wore in a twist that would have looked old-fashioned on most women. On Regan, it looked elegant. I suspected the tawny pantsuit she wore had cost more than my whole autumn wardrobe. At the double sliding doors to the living room, Regan and Holcomb stepped back as a matter of course to let Susan and Albert precede them. Susan's daughter brought up the rear. Twenty-one, Monique was tall and dark like the others and would have outclassed Regan as the family beauty, if she hadn't applied makeup with a lavish hand, adorned each earlobe with five silver studs, and styled her hair to resemble a cave woman's after a strenuous night on the furs. She sauntered in wearing tight black pants, a tight red sweater, and high-heeled boots. With a casual flick of one wrist, she said, Hey, teensy. At least she greeted me. My sisters had paid me no more attention than they did the life-sized marble nymph by our front door. From the time I was born, six years after Regan, 
and ate after Susan, they had made it clear that I was an insignificant appendage to the royal family. I was certain that when Regan made up holiday dinner lists, or Susan chose whom to invite to college faculty events, they each said, when they got to the bottom of the list, Oh, and Teensy. Since childhood, I had kept sketchbooks the way other women keep journals, recording happy, sad, or humorous events in caricatures. My earliest drawing showed two large princesses playing various games while a small princess watched. That afternoon, I glanced in the hall mirror to reassure myself that I wasn't invisible. In another family, I might have been considered decently attractive. I had a pleasant enough face and what my mother used to call honest eyes. But some rogue ancestor had made the